So we are going to look this morning at a section um, on the triumphal entry. Pastor Miko, uh, after worship, he read Matthew's account. Matthew from Matthew chapter 21. He read Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. And we're going to look a little bit of that throughout this message. Uh, But we're going to look at and hone in on Luke's account, Dr. Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And I've titled the message this morning, The Weeping King, The Weeping King. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But right now, we're going to look at the path that he was walking towards his arrest, towards his betrayal, towards his arrest and his crucifixion. And so the weeping king, would you, would you pray with me before we jump into Luke 19? Father, we come before you this morning and, and what a privilege it has been just to worship with your people, to worship you, to exalt you, Lord, to declare from the first song, Lord, we are here for you. We are here for you to worship you, to put you first in our life, uh, to celebrate with one another the resurrection of Christ. And I just thank you for the work you're doing in each one of us. And that work is to conform us into the image of Christ. And I pray that that would continue as we are opening your word and we're looking at the account from Luke chapter 19 of the triumphal entry of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would touch all of our hearts as we hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who was alive on June 2nd, 1953? Have anyone here that was alive June 2nd, 1953? Were you watching television that day? June 2nd, 1953? So on June 2nd, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England. Did you know that, those who were alive uh, in 1953? Did you know that? Yeah, 1953? And so she was 25 years old. She was crowned queen of England. And, and the, the coronation was spectacular. It was grand. Uh, it, it was what it should be. It should be this spectacular and grand uh, uh, event that takes place. And thousands of people, tens of thousands of people gathered all over England. And, and there was a procession that, there was a procession that went down uh, the streets of London heading towards Westminster Abbey. And I've got a picture to kind of show you what it would have looked like, or actually what it did look like. And as you see there, you just see the thousands of people lining the streets as they're heading towards Westminster Abbey. And, and of course, I can't show you all the different pictures of the ceremony and, and all the things that, went, that took place, but, but there was a lot of, uh, what's the phrase, pomp and circumstance. There's a lot of, of, of pageantry that was going on. And, and this was to celebrate the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And it says, as I was reading about this coronation, it says that 27 million people in the, in the UK watched the ceremony on television and 11 million listened on the radio. And it said the population in the UK was 36 million at that point. And I don't understand those numbers because that would be uh, 38 million people. Uh, so Apparently, there were some other regions that were watching and, and listening, but there was millions of people all around the United Kingdom that tuned in, those that couldn't make it to the procession, those that couldn't make it to the, to the event, they were watching. They were in awe of what was taking place. It says that there were more than 2,000 journalists, 500 fo- fo- photographers from 92 nations on the coronation route. So that picture of the route that we saw there? 
There was over 2,000 journalists, 500 photographers from 92 nations that were on that route to document for history, for history's sake, the coronation of a 25-year-old woman, Queen Elizabeth II. And so this is a coronation of an earthly queen, or you can have a coronation of an earthly king throughout history, and those have happened throughout history in, in many nations where they recognize kings. Or, or you have the swearing-in of a president. What takes place when that happens? There's lots of pageantry, and, and thousands and millions of people watch on TV. I've never been to one, but tens of thousands of people show up for that day, and there's celebration, and, and everything is done in a way to, to honor the person that is coming into power and into authority. And today, this is what we're going to look at in Luke 19. It's what was read earlier in Matthew 21, but it was a, it was a coronation that wasn't really supposed to take place. It was a coronation in that moment that was not planned. It was a coronation-like ceremony and celebration that Christ did not organize on his own behalf. And so what we're going to look at here today is we're going to look at this last week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and ultimately his resurrection. And we're going to look at the triumphal entry in Luke 19, his unlikely public coronation-like celebration as king. And so I just want to show you real quick before we jump into the text, uh, the traditional calendar for the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. We see it here Sunday, what we're going to look at here today, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, there was the cleansing of the temple. Tuesday, controversies with the Jewish leaders, which happened a lot in his ministry. Wednesday, there was a day of rest. Thursday, a preparation for Passover. Friday, his trial, his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. Sunday, Jesus is raised from the dead. And this is the last days, the last week of his earthly ministry. And as we're going to read through this account in Luke 19 of this triumphal entry, we're going to pick from some other sections of other gospel accounts of this story, but we're going to primarily look at Luke 19. We're going to focus on three powerful realities about the, what I'm going to call the high king of heaven. Jesus is the high king of heaven. We're going to look at the humility that the high king of heaven walks in. He comes in a humble way. We'll see his humility. And we're going to also recognize that the high king of heaven not only came in humility, but he is worthy of the highest praise. He's worthy of the highest praise. And then the last thing we'll look at from this account in Luke 19 is that the high king of heaven is going to weep over those who go their own way. He weeps over those who choose to go their own way. So let's look at the text. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start reading in verse 28. So Luke 19, starting in verse 28, it says, And when he had said these things, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set 
Jesus on it. So these are the first verses we're going to look at from this account here. And the first thing we're going to see here from these first few verses is that the high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance. The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance and he's headed to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And he is the high king of heaven, but he makes a lowly entrance. And as Pastor Matt was talking about a little bit before communion, the the people of God, the nation of Israel had been under the thumb of Rome and they were under the oppression of Rome and they were longing for freedom. They were longing for the fulfillment of the prophecies of, of Messiah they were longing to see the time when they would be liberated. And so, and so there was this, this anticipation and, and what was happening during this time as Jesus is leading up to entering into the outskirts of Jerusalem, heading to the city, was that before this day had taken place, Jesus was causing a stir because of his life and his ministry. He was causing a stir. And what was causing a stir? What was causing a stir was the miracles that he was doing. The signs and the wonders. Right before this, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Lazarus. Can you imagine the stir that was caused? Nobody raises people from the dead but God. Nobody raises people from the dead but someone sent from God. And so not only has he raised Lazarus, but he had healed those that were born blind. He had healed those that were sick and lame and crippled. He had been doing miracles. He had fed thousands of people with just a few elements of food. I mean, the, can, can you imagine what it was like to live during that time in this region, in this area? And so this is what was going on. Jesus was causing a stir. And everything at this point culminating in the Feast of Passover, it had reached really a fever pitch. And some estimates, some estimates would say that around the region of Jerusalem, there would have been around 1.5 million people that had assembled for the Feast of Passover. Around 1 to 2 million people had Assembled. And some estimates say, as you study this, that, that for his entry, as he was leaving and heading towards Jerusalem, when he was in the outskirts, headed up to the city, that there was around 100,000 people that eventually accumulated as he went down his path towards the city. So this is thousands and tens of thousands of people that are clamoring to get to Jesus, to see him, to be a part of what he's doing, because he is causing a stir and, and this is what I think some of them were asking. The crowds were surging as the news spread that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. And I think they were asking questions like this. Is this the moment that Jesus is going to go public with his plans for Israel? Is this the moment? Is this the time he's finally going to go public? We've been seeing all these signs. And certainly the, the raising of Lazarus, of Lazarus, certainly this is the moment that anyone would believe in him. Maybe they're asking something like this. Is it finally time for our nation to have the king we've been waiting for? We've been under Roman oppression. Is this the time? So you, you see all of this. And let's just think about from a practical human standpoint. Jesus is not oblivious to the stir. He's not oblivious to what is going on. He's not oblivious to the noise going on all around him. And he knows that things are reaching a fever pitch. And so if, you, if it's you and I entering the city, we're going to get like a, like a hype crowd to come with us. We're going to get our hype people to come around, blow trumpets, and, and we're going to enter the city and, and play into the, into the hype, wouldn't we? 
Some of us say, well, I would never do that. Yeah, we probably would do something like that. We're, we, would, we would read our own press clippings. We would, we would, we would uh, 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 think that, you know, that, that we were the stuff and that we have it going on. And we would get people to come and, hey, let's ride the wave of what's going on here. But Jesus doesn't ride any wave. He creates the waves. He doesn't have to ride any waves of popularity. He's the high king of heaven. How does Jesus enter the city? Does he ride the wave of the adulation of the people? Does he make preparations to present himself in Jerusalem at Passover as the true king of the universe? Does he do that? Is he going to prepare something from an earthly symbol to reflect who he really is? Look back to the text. We just read it. What does he do? He says, hey, go get a donkey. Go get a colt. It's tied up. Tell them the master needs it. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat, they set Jesus on it. Matthew says it was a donkey. The prophecy we're going to read in Zechariah 9.9 says it was a donkey. It was a, a colt uh, and it was a donkey. The high king of heaven rides in not on a horse, not with a chariot, not with soldiers behind him and in front of him like we saw in that picture there of the coronation of the Queen of England in 1953. He comes in riding on a donkey. The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance. And it didn't look like an entrance that a king would have made as they entered the heart of a city, not Jerusalem. If, 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 if you were the king of Israel and you were going to come into Jerusalem and you were an earthly king and that was your purpose, you would have not entered like Jesus did. Jerusalem was the center of the nation of Israel, the center of the worship of God. It was the place where Passover was taking place. Now was the moment to capitalize on that. And Jesus comes in and makes a lowly entrance. And so not only was it a reflection of the humility of Christ, but it was a reflection of a fulfilled prophecy. 500 years before Christ ever rode that donkey into the heart of Jerusalem, listen to this prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Wow, can you believe that? Not only is he the high king of heaven, but he, he, he is the high king of heaven who is omniscient and all-knowing. And he knew that the colt would be there tied up, so he sent two of his disciples to go get it. And he, 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 knew, he knew who he was and why he was there, but he didn't come to, to demonstrate that for all to see, for to make this public grand entrance. But he comes in a humble, lowly position. This is our Lord. He is the Lord of creation. He is the king of the universe. He is ruling and reigning with all power and authority. And yet when the high king of heaven, the God of creation, becomes man, his purpose is to serve in humility. His purpose is not to come and take what is his, but his purpose is to come and lay down to lay down his rights, to come and serve in humility, to obey his father's will. This is why he came, not to be crowned an earthly king, but to come as the heavenly king to serve those that he created. Wow, what a contrast. 
We see this all over the New Testament. We see this picture of Christ's humility all over Scripture, all over the New Testament. How, how was Jesus born? Where, where was he born? He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And in fact, the high king of heaven, when God becomes man, there is no room for him to even have a hotel room. They come, Mary and Joseph, she said, Mary's about to give birth, and they're saying, we need a place to give birth. There's no room for him. They have to go, and the, the high king of heaven is born, becomes man, and he's born amongst stinky, smelly animals. Amongst hay, amongst all the stuff that happens in a manger, he's born there. The high king of heaven humbles himself and comes down to humanity, to his creation. He's born in a manger. And the first people to get word of his birth are who? Shepherds. Some of the lowest in society are the first ones to hear the message of the birth of our Savior. The high king of heaven, born in humility. You remember in the the gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, and some of the other gospel accounts tell this story as well. But Andrew and John, they want to figure out their position in God's earthly kingdom because this is what the the, the people of Israel would have thought that Jesus was coming. If he's Messiah, he's doing all these signs and that means he is our promised king to liberate us from the oppression of Rome. And so Andrew and John are saying, hey, hey, we want to find out where are we going to fit into this kingdom that Jesus is about to establish. Where's our place? And they get their mom to come and be a part of it and and try to get her to get some family connection there and to say, hey, 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 would you give my sons here a place on your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Matthew 20, verse 27. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even As the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. This is our king. This is Christ. He didn't come into Jerusalem tooting his own horn. He didn't come uh, uh, to his creation in the incarnation to be served, but he came to serve. Another section, it's the premier section, I think, in all of the New Testament to describe the humility of Christ. Philippians 2, listen to this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. That's called self-sacrifice. That's called humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if we are going to be humble amongst each other and serve one another, it's going to be because we have the mind of of Christ. And what kind of mind did Christ have? Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a divine rights. This is what Philippians is saying here. Divine rights, divine privileges. He could have came and said, all of you, you serve me because I am the high king of heaven. 
But he came and he laid down those rights and he, he rebuked Andrew and John and he rebuked his disciples and he said, if you think that by you jockeying for position and trying to find your place in my kingdom, that that's the way that you're going to have influence and power in this life, you have got it all wrong. If you seek to be first, you'll be last, but the last will be first. And I'm here, Christ said, I'm here to demonstrate that to you. Divine rights and privileges laid down. Privileges laid down. Privileges laid down. How many times do we see people that have positions of power, they don't lay down their privilege and their rights. They, they demand things of others that they don't want to do themselves. They demand things of others that they don't want to do themselves. You remember 2020? Anybody remember 2020? A little bit? Got some vague memories of what happened in 2020? Did you ever watch the news in 2020? A little bit? And did you ever see all the COVID rules that were broken by all the people? They're in positions of power, the, the governors and the politicians. And, and, and why is it that the governors and the politicians broke all the COVID rules that they implemented for us to follow? Why did some of them do it? Not all of them. That's a broad statement. Why did some of them break the rules privately when they thought nobody was watching? Well, hey, because I can, because I've got position and power and, and I'm the governor or I'm Senator so-and-so and Congressman so-and-so. Divine rights, divine privileges, actually earthly rights and privileges. God has the only one with divine rights, but I have earthly rights and privileges. I get to make the rules. You guys remember that time? Jesus was completely opposite of that. He didn't come in and say, here I am, here I am. Give me what is mine. He said, here I am. I'm here to serve you and to lay down my life for you. The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance, not demanding rights and privileges, but laying them down. Our natural tendency as human beings is to take what is ours. I mean, how often do we hear that phrase in in America today? This is mine. I deserve it. My rights this is what I have earned. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. I got to protect my rights and my stuff and my space and my people. Jesus came to demonstrate a different way. He came to demonstrate a way that says, no, it is not my rights, my stuff, my people, my position, my power. He came and said, I have all authority and all power and all rights. And I come and I lay it all down for the sake of others. Wow. What a completely different picture of humanity. So this reminds us, when we think about the high king of heaven and his lowly entrance, we think about that. How does that, how does that meet our world? How do we, what do we do with that picture of who Christ is showing himself to be in this triumphal entry? Well, I think what it does for us is it reminds us that as disciples of Christ, that should be reflected in our life. That if we are saying, Christ, I am your follower, I'm following after you, and if I look at your life and I see your life and this is how you live, and if I am your disciple, then that means that in my life it should be reflected that I serve others, that I put others above myself. And you know, that's not easy to do. Not easy to do. To put others above ourselves Again, because we like self-preservation and we like to feed our own bellies and we like to sleep when we want to sleep. And if you have kids and you're raising kids, you know that that really doesn't happen. Your agenda gets thrown out the window, doesn't it? Most of the time. 
All I want to do today is just watch the masters. And my wife knows that, that I, she's, well, I've, I've trained her enough after 18 years to know that, that when I'm done with service here, I'm going to change and I'm going to get some food and, and it's five hours of golf. Well, that's not real life, folks. That's manipulation and control is what that is. Real life is, is that you don't get your way all the time. And if we are disciples of Christ, this, this lowly entrance from the high king of heaven should press into our hearts and remind us in our marriage and with our kids and on our jobs and at school and wherever we live. We should say, Lord, may who you are impact the way that I live because you live in me. The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance. Next, what do we see? Let's go back to the text. If you have your Bibles, let's continue. Luke 19, the high king of heaven makes this lowly entrance. Now look at verse 36, 36 through 40. It says this, it says, and as he rode along, they spread cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Wow. That's awesome. What's the second thing we see here? The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance and the high king of heaven will receive the praise he deserves. He will receive the praise he deserves. And as Jesus rides into the city, as he's getting closer to Jerusalem, the crowd is getting larger and larger and larger. It's a throng of people that are gathering around Christ. And notice what the text said. It was gathering and they were saying all these things, praising Christ because of the signs he was doing. So we were saying a few minutes ago, this is why things had reached a fever pitch because he had just resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And this is what was taking place. And they believed Jesus was here to be the Messiah. This is what they thought he came to do. And notice it says that they spread their garments on the ground. So a, a, a garment would have been like an outer garment. It would be like me taking my jacket off. And as a way to show honor to somebody that was coming down a path, I would take my jacket off, I'd lay it on the ground so that they could walk a ride over my garment and it would be symbolic of the fact that I'm submitting my life under their authority. So that's what was happening. That's why they were laying their garments. They, they were saying, we are under you. We are under you. You are a king. Blessed is the king. That's what they begin to say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They took off their outer garments. They laid it down. We are submitting to you. In Matthew's account that, that Pastor Miko read after worship, it says they laid palm branches down. The palm branches that they laid down symbolized victory and joy and celebration. So what are they saying there? What they're saying there is that they're saying, we belong to you. We are subservient to you. You are a king. We recognize you as the king of Israel. And we are, we are declaring victory. Victory over what? Over Rome. Victory over all the enemies of Israel. Victory for God's people. We are submitting to you and we, are, we recognize that you are the one that's going to bring victory. And because of that, there's joy 
and their celebration. And this is why we're shouting. The crowd was celebrating what they believed to be the beginning of the end of Roman oppression. This is what's going on right here. They also said with a loud voice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were vocalizing what the, what, they were vocalizing what the garments and the palm branches symbolized. And no doubt it was a reference to Psalm 118. No doubt in their minds, as people that studied God's word in Psalms 118, it was a reference to this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, from Jerusalem, from the house of the Lord. Save us, we bless you. Matthew also records that they said something else. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're praising, they're declaring, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. What does that phrase mean? Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. It literally can be translated to mean this, save now, Messiah, save now. Save now, Messiah. This is clearly what this crowd is de- it's believing that Jesus is here to do. They are praising him because they believe he is here to, pr- to, to, to save them from their earthly issues. And they're not speaking of a salvation from sin, but rather salvation from Rome and the promises of the Messiah's kingdom. The crowd's loud. They're shouting and declaring. They're rejoicing and praising. They're Messiah. But those aren't the only people that are in the crowd. You remember what we just read? Who else was in the crowd? The Pharisees were in the crowd. The Pharisees and Jesus, they didn't get along. Jesus loved them, but the Pharisees did not love him. And notice what the Pharisees said. Look back at the text, verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples? Because they believe, which was going to be the charge against Jesus when they crucified him, they believed that Jesus was blaspheming. That he was allowing the crowd to blaspheme because he was allowing the crowd to call Jesus the son of David and the king who comes from God. And they were saying, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from saying this blasphemy. This is is not right. Rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know what's so compelling about that? That not only did the crowd see the signs, but those same Pharisees who were coming to Jesus and telling him to rebuke the ones that were praising, they saw with their eyes what the other people saw. They saw the same thing. In spite of all of that, the Pharisees were blind to the reality. They were willfully blind to the reality of who Jesus was. And you know what Jesus is saying when he's saying, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I believe in essence, Jesus is saying this to these Pharisees. He's saying, if this creation of mine, who I have given the power of words, doesn't praise me, then everything else that I have made will praise me. If the ones that I've created and given the power of words won't praise me, then everything else will. 
He's looking at these Pharisees and he's saying, I have given you the power of words. I've given you the authority over my word to tend it and to guard it. I've given you the power of words. And if you won't praise me, everything else in creation will praise me. Willfully blind. What a contrast between the crowd and the Pharisees. Praise from the crowd for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. And silence in the face of truth. Silence in the face of truth. And there's one account of a story in Jesus' life, and we're going to get to it as we go through the Gospel of John, but there's one account that stands out to me as such a profound picture of the blindness of a person right in the face of divine truth in front of them. And it's John chapter 9. John 9 is the story, the account of the man born blind and Jesus healing the man. So, so Jesus uh, gets questioned by his disciples one day and they say, whose fault is it that this man was born blind? It was it his fault or was it his parents' fault? Did he sin or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. It wasn't his fault or his parents' fault that he was born blind, but he was born blind so that I would receive glory. That's another message for another time. And then Jesus looks at the man born blind and says, he spits on the ground and He makes mud and he puts it on his eyes and he says, go to the pool and wash. He goes to the pool and he washes and he comes back and he sees, he can see, he he has sight. And he starts getting questioned and the Pharisees are questioning him and the Pharisees are saying, well, well, who did this? And they said, Jesus. And, 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 and they're questioning the validity of the, of the miracle. He says, well, I don't know. Once I was blind, but now I see, I don't know who this man is, but he healed me. And so then the Pharisees say, well, well, we'll go talk to the guy's parents because certainly, you know, maybe he was saying he was blind, but he really wasn't. Let's go to the parents. So they go to the parents and the parents, they question the parents. The parents said, yeah, he was born blind. Go talk to him yourself. He was the one that was blind. And we pick up the story in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God for we know that this man speaking of Jesus is a sinner he answered whether he is a sinner I do not know one thing I do know that though I was blind now I see and they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes he answered them I have told you already and you would not listen what do you want to hear it again (laughs) I love this conversation you want to hear it again okay Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Do you hear the heart of what this man born blind is saying to these blind Pharisees? He's saying, I was blind, but you're really blind. I was blind, but now I see, but you're the ones that are blind. How do you not know where this man comes from? Do you not know where he comes from? Look, he opened my eyes. How can you not know? This is such a picture in the triumphal entry in John chapter 9. The picture of the Pharisees is a picture of those who have eyes but refuse to see. They have eyes, yet they refuse to see. 
They will not listen. They will not yield. Then no matter what the evidence is, no matter how they see the hand of God move, and there will always be people like that in our life and, and wherever we live, and there will always be people like that we see in media and TV and Hollywood and social media. There will always be people that no matter the evidence in creation, no matter the evidence in lives transformed, no matter the evidence, people will be willfully blind. They will refuse to listen and they will refuse to see. I run into people like that all the time. You run, if you had a conversation with somebody and they just refuse to see the truth, it could be about any subject, like Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, not LeBron James. Amen. Come on now. I knew I'd get some claps right there. Or what about this truth? Dr. Pepper is the best soda. And how in the world could anybody ever drink Pepsi? I just don't get it. Amen. Amen to that. Those are trivial, trivial truths. Subjective truths. But how many people in your life, when you talk to them of the faithfulness of God and what Christ has done in your life, they are willingly blind and they refuse to see in the face of evidence. They refuse to see. So, so, so I, when I think about this, it, it reminds me of, of, of how this should really impact my heart. And, and the way it impacts my heart, it should impact all of us, is that may we never be like the blind Pharisees and refuse to praise God for what he has done. May we never look in the face of what God has done in our life. And so often we get so busy that we, we overlook all of the, the things he's done throughout all the years of our life. And, and we can become subtly like the blind Pharisees. And we refuse to praise God. May we not be like the blind Pharisees. May we give the high king of heaven the praise he deserves. May we give the high king of heaven the praise he deserves because he will receive it. He will receive it. If if we don't praise him, what? The stones will praise him. Creation itself declares the glory of God. And now the sad transition. You ready for a sad transition? We've got a sad transition that's going to end with something powerful, but we've got a sad transition right here. The sad reality of what is going to take place a few days from this triumphal entry. Here's the sad transition. The adoring crowd goes from shouting, blessed is the king, to five days later crying out, crucify him. That's the sad transition. That the very ones, they actually joined the Pharisees. They got convinced by the Pharisees. The Pharisees who said, rebuke your disciples, Jesus, for their blaspheming. That the, the, those very disciples, those very, those very people, that crowd who was saying, blessed is the king, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest. Save now Messiah, save now Messiah. They picked up their voice. And when they were given the choice, Barabbas or Jesus. Release to us Barabbas. Release to us the criminal and crucify Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. And this leads us to the third thing we'll see about the high king of heaven today. Look back to the text. Luke 19, 41 through 42. The last two verses we'll see today. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
The third thing we see today is that the high king of heaven weeps over those who go their own way. The high king of heaven makes a lowly entrance and the high king of heaven will receive the praise he deserves. But the high king of heaven in the face of rejection and spiritual blindness, he weeps over those who go their own way, who refuse to see, who don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. He weeps over them. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the fact that in the place that was to be the center of the worship of God, In that place, amongst God's own people, they did not listen. They ignored the signs. They pushed away the fulfilled prophecies. And they went their own way. They rejected the one true means of salvation. They stared at God in the flesh and they still rejected. You know, there's only two places in scripture where we see Jesus weep. The first one was when he heard that Lazarus was dead. The second one is right here. And I want you to picture the scene. I just want you to, to feel this moment with me. He's coming. He's not in Jerusalem yet. He's making his trek to Jerusalem. He's walking by foot. And he has his 12 with him. And then another 12 add. And then another 12. And another 15. And another 100. And the crowd is getting larger and larger. And Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And the clamor is getting larger and larger and louder and louder. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's not there yet. It's off in the distance. And the crowd is numbering into the hundreds and into the thousands. And as he's getting closer to the city... They're putting their cloaks down and they're laying palm branches down. This is getting closer and closer to the city and they're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd is now this huge throng of people. And Jesus is in the center and they put him on a donkey and he enters into the the outskirts right before the entrance of the city. And he sees Jerusalem. And, And certainly it is in the middle of the clamor of the crowd. As he's looking at Jerusalem and he's hearing the praises from the same people that are praising him now but will reject him later. He's hearing that praise and he's looking at the city and he's seeing the whole picture of the father's plan. And he begins to weep over a people who are hard hearted and who are blinded to the truth. And he says and he weeps and he cries out and he says, would that you have known the things that make for peace. You think That deliverance from Roman oppression is the peace that you're looking for. And you think that this is the peace I came to bring. But I am telling you that if you would have known the things that lead, that make for true peace, you would worship me truly with sincerity of heart. You feel that picture? This shows us the compassion of our Savior. I I love what Warren Wearsby says about this moment. He compares Jesus and Jonah. Jonah looked at Nineveh, looked on Nineveh. You remember Jonah on top of the mountain, the the hill, and hoped it would be destroyed. While Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept because it had destroyed itself. Wow. So here's, here's the point here of this last section. God allows people to go their own way. God allows people to go their own way. Where do we see that? It's all over scripture. Romans 1. 
Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. It's the Pharisees suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's the crowd eventually suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's all of creation that is in rebellion against God. All those who are in rebellion against God, they suppress truth about who God is so they can live in unrighteousness. And what does the text say there? As you continue in verse 19 and 20 and 21, it says, what can be known about God is plain to see. The high king of heaven is also the king of creation. Creation declares there is a God. And so in the face of overwhelming evidence that God is our creator and there is a God and he sent his son to die and to rise again for the redemption of humanity. In the face of all of that, people rather choose unrighteousness than truth. And what does God do? He lets them go their own way. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Your heart wants to go towards lust? Okay, go your own way to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Blessed is the king who is blessed forever. So this is where we are in society today. God lets people go their own way. And what happens when God lets people go their own way and do their own thing and rebel against him? What happens? You start getting craziness that takes place in society. People go their own way. I don't want to submit to God as creator. I am my own God. I am my own creator. I can do what I want and live how I want. We are living in a time in society and our culture today where it is more evident than ever that people are going their own way and one of the evidence is that there is a complete rebellion against God as creator people want to deny how God has even wired their DNA they want to deny it and this is put on full display for everyone to see it was put on display a little while ago whenever a person a woman who was a candidate for the Supreme Court of the United States, was asked a question, can you define a woman? Talking about chromosomes here. Can you define a woman? And she said, I cannot. That right there is a microcosm and a reflection of a society that has gone its own way. And God says, you want to go that way? You can go that way. And you will reap the results of that of that perspective and that, rege- and that rejection of me. And Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he looks over America and he looks over e- every people and every society that goes their own way. And what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps over them because they're going their own way. He says, no, I am your creator. I am your God. And I'm weeping over you because you're going your own way. And, and the end of that path is destruction and death and pain and horror. He weeps. It is a heartbreaking reality that produces heartbreaking results. There's another section. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. It's called the seven woes of the Pharisees. 
He's rebuking them for being hypocrites. He's saying it over and over again in many different ways. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. And you're going your own way. You're rejecting me. And you think you're, you think you're just dis- displaying your righteousness before others to be seen. And that's what, that's what the worship of the one true God is all about. But in, in reality, I'm after your heart. I want you to worship me in truth and spirit and in truth. And he rebukes them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he cries out again, very similar to Luke 19. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings for protection and safety. But you were not willing. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. The Lord weeps over those who have chosen to reject his good plan for their life. You ever, you ever been in a relationship with somebody and you know they're headed down the wrong path? You just know, you see it, they're going down the wrong path. And you know that if they keep going down that path, that it's, it's pain, it's heartache, and ultimately it could even be the destruction of their life, the, the destruction of their family and their friends. And you see them, you're watching them, and you know, and, and they won't listen to you. They won't listen to you. They won't, they, you, 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 you have a family intervention. You get together and you meet with them. You say, no, please don't go down this path. Yet they are refusing to see. They're refusing to see. Jesus says this in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think, this is speaking to the Pharisees, that in the scriptures themselves you have eternal life. You're missing the point. The scriptures are about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. You may have life. So when I think about this reality of those who are willingly blind, they're choosing to be blind, they're wanting to go their own way, God lets them go. I think about two ways in which it informs our life today. The first one would be this, is that if you have gone your own way, the high king of heaven humbled himself and took your place on the cross so that you can be forgiven, so that you can know the things that make for peace. If you're here today and you've gone your own way, The high king of heaven weeps over you and says, my way is so much better than your way. I am your creator. I made you. I created you. I have a plan for your life and my way is so much better. And the sin and the shame and the guilt that you're living in today, you can be forgiven and you can be right with me and you can, you can, you can become a new creation in Christ today. So this is the first way in which this informs our life. If you're here today and you have gone your own way, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Pray to the God of creation, Lord, remove my blinders today so I can see the beauty of Christ. Another way this informs us is that may our hearts be filled with the same kind of compassion that our Lord has for those who are living their life in rebellion against God. May we not only reflect his humility as we learned earlier, but may we, we reflect his compassion. So often we, when I quoted uh, the, the candidate for the Supreme Court, so often we look at them in disgust. Oh, I can't believe them. Why are they doing that? It's so terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. And I can't believe they're doing it. But, but God weeps over them because they're blinded. They don't see the world correctly. They're blinded by the God of this world by their own sinful flesh, and by Satan himself. They're blinded. So we should weep with our Lord over those who are going their own way. May we have that same heart of compassion. 
So now that was the transition. It got, it got difficult as we look at this transition of, of the same crowd that was shouting Hosanna is the same crowd that shouted crucify. Now we have, we think this is the conclusion, but we know it's not the conclusion, right? There's another conclusion. This is not the end. The overwhelming reception of Jesus into Jerusalem by tens of thousands of people, it looked like the coronation of a king and it ends with our Lord weeping over those who did not have eyes to see. But that's not the true end. The real end, however, is found in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection. Oh, this is so powerful. Wait, I'm almost done. It's 11.15. I got a late start, so I'm sorry. Oh, this is so good. The same crowd, and you know for sure it was some of the same crowd that was shouting, blessed is the king, Hosanna in the highest, is some of the same people that are in the upper room after the resurrection. The Lord said, go wait for the promise of the Father. Commotion takes place. The Holy Spirit comes. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up and begins to preach and listen to his message. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed who? Men of Judea and all who dwell where? Jerusalem. Let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attest to you by God with mighty works. Do you remember that? Why were they clamoring? Because of the works. A man attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Wow, I just, a little pause break right here, just for a second. You, just, you can't pass over stuff like that and just see the paradoxes in Scripture. It, Peter says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow! God's got a plan. Hallelujah. You crucified him. You're responsible. It's powerful. God raised him up. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The same people who were shouting praise and yet ultimately rejected, the same people that Jesus wept over, Peter's preaching to. And now, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Yeah, we're guilty. It's us. We can see it now. The blinders are lifted. The blinders are gone. We see it. How could we not have seen it then? But now we see it. Now we see it. What shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent. Believe. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. You'll be forgiven of your sins. Repent. Repent. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. So this is the ultimate conclusion of all of this. What Satan means for evil, God intends for good. For the good of all who will repent and believe what Satan intends for evil to destroy Christ. God intends for good for the redemption and the forgiveness of all who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the real conclusion. That, you're supposed to clap right there, yes. Good job. <laughs> That's the real conclusion. The real conclusion is not the rejection. The real conclusion is the redemption. The conclusion is not the rejection. The conclusion is the fulfillment of the plan of the Father from the, from, from, from the beginning of creation. Before creation ever began, Christ fulfills that purpose and that plan. That even in the midst of rejection, those who place their faith can be redeemed. Coronation. 
Queen Elizabeth II, 1953. It was beautiful, wasn't it? I didn't see it. I just see pictures. You saw pictures. That was awesome. But you know what the greatest coronation was from our perspective? This first gospel message over 2,000 years ago, we have the coronation or the birth, the coronation of the New Testament church. And it is a church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Amen? Amen. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Would you, would you, would you pray with us? Father, we thank you, Lord, that you gave up all the glory and splendor of heaven, that you came down to this earth, lived as a man, and you took our, our, our sin. You, you died on that cross for us in place of us. Thank you, Father, for the upside-down kingdom, that to be the, the first, to be the first we must lay down our lives. God, I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to live that life, Lord, to put others before ourselves. That we would bring glory to you with our lives, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us to be your mouthpiece, to be witnesses for you, Lord, that we wouldn't cower, but that we would Stand up and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus and what you have done for us in our lives, Lord. So, God, we give you all the glory for what you have done for us, what you're doing now, what you're going to do in the future. And, God, I pray for everyone here today that you touch them and bless them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.